Hello, magic makers, and welcome back to the Metaphysical Apothecary. We are your hosts, Shannon and Megan. Hi, everyone. Also known as the Scorpio Sisters, here to explore the mysterious, the magical, and the arcane. The month of February is often celebrated as the month of love. It's the time that we all start thinking about spring a little bit more. Obviously, we have Valentine's Day with the various trappings that go into that, the gift giving, the celebration of romantic love usually, but a lot of people also celebrate platonic love during this month and on our social media channels. And with the podcast, we are choosing to focus on and celebrate spiritual love love and most especially spiritual self-love with some interesting tools and explore the dichotomy of love deities. Around this time of year, you see a ton of Cupid imagery, Aphrodite mm-hmm. imagery. You see a lot of that symbolism that has been taken from pagan origins and brought into the modern world as part of our culture. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to love deities, people often view them as very one-dimensional. We look at the little flying cherub cupids and think, oh, he's just flying around, like, throwing darts at people, making them fall in love. Aphrodite, look at the way she's depicted in media. I was a huge Xena Warrior Princess fan back in the day. Look at the way that Aphrodite was depicted in that show. And it was a good show in terms of learning your Greek mythology. But she was literally this blonde bombshell and she was dressed in pink lingerie. Mm -hmm. She was your basic blonde bimbo, kind of. And Eros, her son, walked around in a white loincloth with his bow and arrows and he was Mr. Beefcake. He was definitely cut. So this is sort of the depiction that we have of love deities, where their emphasis is on romantic love and most especially geared towards sex. Yeah, their erotic love. Yes. And certainly these deities can be called upon for those things. They have Mm -hmm. been for thousands of years. Aphrodite had the practice of sacred prostitution in her temples. It's possible that similar goddesses did as well. We don't have as much evidence for that, but we know that they did in Aphrodite's temples. However, there's a dichotomy to these love deities because most of the time they are also associated with death and war. Mm -hmm. So you not only have love, but you have death and war, which means in the ancient world, people saw these things as being connected. Yep, the Hitara were a special type of prostitute or courtesan that was popular in ancient Greece, especially in ancient Athens, that were artistic and not just erotic entertainment. The men went to these women for platonic reasons or friendship reasons. They actually saw these women as a conversational partner that they could debate with, that they could share philosophies with, that they could have deep thoughts that, especially in ancient Athens, they did not have this type of relationship with their wives most of the time. So Aphrodite's prostitutes were probably not as one-dimensional as they would have us believe. So let's take a look at Freya, for example. She's the Norse queen of the gods. Um, In some traditions, she's married to Odin. In other traditions, she's not. It depends on which myths you're reading, just like it does with any other myth. But she is often portrayed as the goddess of love and sex. 
That's true. She was also a psychopomp, which is a deity or a being that escorts people into the underworld. She was also a witch. She was a rune master. Mm -hmm. The rune master. The rune master. And she was also a vulfa, which is the Norse word for a particular kind of witch that practices something called the sidir. The Sidere is a practice wherein basically you are learning astral projection plus. It's an interdimensional kind of magic mm -hmm. and travel. She was also Queen of the Valkyries, who are a well-known race of female warriors in Norse mythology. And she also did some pretty nasty things to people, including Loki. And mm -hmm. she was not very nice to Loki's first wife, Angerboda. Nope. She actively kidnapped Angerboda's children and took them away from her. And that's something that, as a follower of Freya, makes me very uncomfortable, but we have to acknowledge all sides. So when it comes to love deities, there's these other darker facets that seemed connected to people in the ancient world. So why? Why were all of these things connected? If you think about the purpose of life, the purpose of life is love right? You love your family. You love your partner. You love yourself. You love nature. You love creating. You take joy in creating mm -hmm. and the act of creating exemplifies your love for your surroundings. So love was also a more complex idea than we give it credit for in our modern world. Because again, you say love, you think about sex, you think about romance, first and foremost, for most people. And yeah, the ancient Greeks and modern Greeks have seven to eight words for love. They have a far more complex, in-depth understanding of the concept of love beyond romantic and erotic sexual love. In our modern society, let's face this, this started centuries ago, where we've started to simplify things down to bare essentials. Mm -hmm. So if a deity or a concept was labeled love, well, I'm going to simplify that down to the most provocative form of that particular concept or deity. Mm -hmm. That provocative stream of thought tends to end up in romance and sex. Right. So you have these multifaceted beings that encompass multiple ideas being distilled down into very one-dimensional caricatures. Mm -hmm. So in terms of going back to Freya, again, she encompasses all of these things and they're all interconnected. Love and death are interconnected. Mm -hmm. How many grieving rituals do we have for people who have died? And it's because we love them. We're trying to honor them. A lot of people have said that grief is just the love that you're no longer able to express to the person who has passed. Mm -hmm. All that leftover love that you want to give to them, but you can't. Mm -hmm. Why do we go to war? I mean, we go to war for many reasons, but one of the big reasons that people go to war, especially in defense of their country or their land, is out of love. Mm -hmm. Even in offense, most of the time, the way you motivated soldiers to go to war and fight your wars was to allow them to bring home resources to their loved ones. Yeah. If they won that war. If you win the war, well, you'll have raided resources from the village down the river to bring back home to your loved ones to supply and provide for them for the coming seasons. Right. You might have 
a better piece of land, you might get a reward from your ruler that raises you up in society so you can provide a better life for the people around you. And we don't like to talk about this, but you might be able to bring home slaves to make your estate better. It's not a practice that we condone, but it did happen. And that is reflected also in modern media, if you think about Mulan. And why does Mulan go to war to begin with? Mulan was a real person. So Mm. her story is conflated in myth, but she was also a historical figure. The whole reason she goes to war to begin with is because she wants to save her father's life. Mm -hmm. And you also have multiple love deities who have been knocked from a pedestal. Freya we've talked about a lot, but there's also Aphrodite, there's also Ishtar, there's also Astarte, there's also Asherah is related to these goddesses as well. Each of the goddesses that I have named bears the title Queen of Heaven. Mm -hmm. This is an extremely significant and important title for your goddesses in antiquity. So in the far ancient world, the most important deity that you had was the goddess. Mm -hmm. And the goddess was the queen of heaven because she was the spark of life that gave everything the ability to do what it does. Gave the stars the ability to burn, the planets the ability to move, gave humans their souls. The ancient Olympians, when Zeus defeats the Titans and his father after releasing his siblings from his father's belly, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades are only able to become kings of their domain after they marry the queens of those domains Uh so zeus can only become king of heaven and king of the gods after he marries hera queen of heaven queen of the gods right so the reason for these queens of heaven being knocked from their pedestal is of course patriarchy As Shannon just talked about, the gods that became more important than their female counterparts had to marry these goddesses before they could achieve that standing. It was the same with Odin and Freya. Odin had to marry Freya to be king of the gods because prior to that, he was not as important as she was. Mm -hmm. He was important, but he was more like Gandalf the Grey. Than he was anything else. So it's like Gandalf the Grey marries Galadriel. Yeah. He was the wanderer at that period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he didn't stop being a wanderer and become king until he and Freya were joined. And this is an interesting parallel within human society because a lot of far ancient civilizations were able to or did follow the lineage of their king, not through their king, but through their king's wife or their king's sister. Mm-hmm. So in ancient Ireland, for instance, there's evidence to show that the high king of Ireland did not pass his crown down to his son, but to his sister's son, his nephew. And usually only after that nephew got approval from the sovereign goddess of the island. Right. That's where you have certain rites that involve priestesses of these goddesses, where the king has to prove his ability to join with spirit through intercourse with one of the high priestesses Mm -hmm. and if he didn't do a good job then he could not be king Mm -hmm. we've talked about these goddesses as encapsulating love and sex that was very much intertwined with spirituality in the ancient world so through intercourse with a high priestess if they were able to achieve climax together then it was proof that he was connected enough 
to the spiritual world that he had the wisdom to rule. Mm-hmm. And similar to the tradition in Ireland that Shannon just outlined, the same traditions existed in ancient Egypt. Yeah. So when you're working with love deities, if a love deity especially one of these goddesses, comes into your life, you are in for a wild ride. (laughs) Yeah. I personally work with Freya. Shannon and my wife work with Aphrodite. So all of us have interactions with these two goddesses quite frequently. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's usually very unexpected when these goddesses tend to pop up and be like, so you're mine. Let's let's figure out how we make this work because you're mine. Yes. It's never going to be at a convenient moment. Freya has been with me since I was a little girl. Oh, she's not no. a patient deity. No, that's a characteristic of love deities as well. They have no patience. Mm-mm. No. If you don't get it done on their timeline, they'll get it done for you. Right. It's probably going to turn out fine. Yeah. That's another part of their dichotomy. Everyone knows the Bible verse that's read at every wedding. Love is patient, love is kind. Not always. No. no mm-mm, mm-mm. That's the ideal when you're with your partner. Yeah. A loving partner is kind. A loving partner is patient. The concept of love has no patience. No. It is also not nice. It's definitely not nice. <laughs> <laughs> It might not feel kind, (laughs) but it is kind in the end. You'll look back and go, that could have gone a lot worse for me. Thank you for guiding me through it. Like Megan said, I work very closely with Aphrodite to understand all the different loves, but especially spiritual love and self-love. One of the first things I do when I realize that I'm interacting with a deity is that I dive deep deep, 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 deep into the mythology in order to make us both comfortable. And then I come up with very old myths that are barely known or barely talked about. And or I'll come up with hints of things and then dive deeper into my own subconscious to interact with them to find personal gnosis. Uh And there's a very good reason why modern culture has portrayed Aphrodite as a gossiping, vapid woman. Because if you pissed her off, the least she can do is gossip about you. Right. That's an ideal situation. You pissed off Aphrodite, and so now she's gossiping about you. That is not a bad thing. That is the best case scenario to happen if Aphrodite is mad at you. Uh Mm-hmm. Because if she's mad at you and she's not gossiping about you, she's making life very difficult for you. If she's silent, if she's gone silent, she's going to make things very difficult. Would you say that's Aphrodite's war aspect or part of her war aspect? Yeah, her war aspect is not loud. She doesn't do war cries. She just dones her her war makeup, grabs Ares, whatever weapon he happens to have at hand, and disappears. Right. Freya's war aspect is fairly obvious in in her leading the Valkyries and things like that. So denying that aspect of her is not easy, but with Aphrodite, it's much more subtle. Yeah, it's very subtle. Some of Aphrodite's more war-inclined children included Phobos, fear, demos, terror, 
And even in some traditions, she's attributed to being the mother of Pan, which is where we get the word panic from. So it's not difficult to see why the ancients who were encroaching on the original Aphrodite followers wanted to knock her down from her pedestal and take her down a peg. Mm -hmm. Because she was extremely powerful and her followers would have had similar practices in the way that they handled things. Mm -hmm. So knocking her down from this multifaceted queen of heaven to a love goddess that just engages in sacred prostitution, just being relative, of course, mm -hmm. was a much more palatable way to deal with her. It was much easier to kind of push her to the side. Ishtar and Astarte and Asherah were much more difficult to separate all of their facets from each other. So if you're working with them, you know, first of all, that's probably going to be a lifelong dedication. I don't work with either of those goddesses, and I don't think Shannon does either. Mm -mm. But for the most part, people who do work with them, it's for life, generally speaking. And there's going to be no denying their multiple facets. The love aspect is certainly there and they will show it to you. They'll reveal it to you. But the other facets of them are inextricable. Ishtar and Inanna are very similar. Those names are often used to be interchangeable. So if you know about Inanna, you know something about Ishtar so you can understand why it would be so difficult to knock her down from her pedestal. So Ishtar, Inanna, Astarte, Ashra were basically just erased as much as they could be because they couldn't just be reduced to love goddesses. No, they couldn't just be reduced to sex and beauty. If nothing else, all of these goddesses that I mentioned have extremely strong ties with the underworld that you can't extricate those journeys to the underworld without destroying their mythology completely. With Freya, ignoring that she's a psychopomp, she still exists. She's still there. There are still other aspects of her. Mm -hmm. It's similar with Aphrodite. Her connection to death and war is heavily buried. It was this successful reduction of her character. Yeah. yeah, even to the point where Homer portrayal of her is where Ares is trying to teach her how to be more projective. Right. To be more warlike, to not be so pansy or wimpy when it comes to fighting, like to actually get into the throes of it. Mm -hmm. Again, you have to dive deep into her mythology and then sometimes you have to come up with personal gnosis. But if you look at hermits in the Trojan War, she breaks up marriages if she's pissed off at you, whether you're a king or not. And in some cases, that's your right to rule. The right of sovereignty is through your wife, if you go back far enough. And if you don't have the right of sovereignty, the right to rule, that tends to mean that you can be challenged and dethroned very easily with the right army, thus creating a war of succession. If you want to look at Helena and her mythology, she was probably a symbol of sovereignty during that period of time. Helena of Troy. Yeah, because she's also the daughter of Zeus. Right. And Zeus doesn't have very many demigoddesses as, as children. Most of his mortal children are demigods. Yeah. So the fact that you have a demigoddess walking around on Earth, it was probably symbolism of... She's, first of all, a lot more than just a demigoddess, but also she's probably a symbol of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. She curses you. To narcissism, hence the legend of Narcissus. Narcissus story does not start or end with the mythology of Echo and how Echo started. 
he actually scorns an unrequited lover very cruelly. He's very cruel about scorning this particular young man in his love and attraction to Narcissus. And that it led to this young man's killing himself. And it pisses Aphrodite off. Because even if you don't love a person, even if it's unrequited love, you do don't have to be cruel about your rejection to them. So she cursed him with narcissism, where he is unable to love anyone else but himself. Mm -hmm. That was a horror story to ancient Greeks. Yeah. Not just a warning. This was a horror story. Right. She curses you with unrequited love. She curses you to love something that is disproportionate to who you are. The beginning of the tale of Psyche and Cupid's love story and romance begins with Aphrodite deciding to be offended by the comparison to their beauty. So she tasks Eros with shooting an arrow at Psyche to fall in love with the ugliest, most hideous thing in her view. Whether it was human or animal, it did not matter. She meant to curse Psyche with a hideous love that was disproportionate to who she was as a person. Right. And I think that in terms of love goddesses, their war aspect is usually rooted in vengeance of some mm -hmm. kind. Whereas war gods typically see war as almost a business transaction. When women go to war, they leave nothing behind except for ash. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons that these goddesses were reduced is because the societies were changing globally and mm -hmm. they wanted to reduce female power in these cultures. They probably needed to reduce female power in those cultures. Yeah, because otherwise the overtake's not going to happen. So if you're working with any of these goddesses, whether you are male, female, non-binary, transgender, however you um, present yourself to the world, remember that. And that might be the reason that they're there also <laughs> is because your power personal power has been diminished to the point where you can't feel it anymore it's still there no one can really take it away from you but it be can become hidden mm -hmm. for me freya will often force me to remember that no one can really make me do anything I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. If somebody tries to tell me that I have to do a certain thing, I'm allowed to look at them and say, no, I don't want to do that. Especially if it's something like, well, you have to go to this football game. I hate football. I married into a family that loves football. Well, you have to watch the game. You have to watch the game. No, I don't. I absolutely do not have to watch the game. You cannot make me. It's not going to hurt any of you who are enjoying the game if you watch the game and I'm not watching the game, but we want you to have fun. So leave me alone is the answer. And it took a long time, but I finally was able to stand up to my in-laws to the point where they don't understand why I don't like the same things they do, but they do understand that I don't and that I have a boundary around certain things. I'm not going to subject myself to something that I dislike so strongly when it's not necessary. Freya is also part of my pantheon that has pushed me to embrace my chosen aesthetic. So looking put together is important to me, even if I'm just by myself in the house. If I'm just 
wearing pajamas. I like them to coordinate. They don't have to match, but I like them to coordinate so that if someone comes over unexpectedly or I need to run outside or even I'm just looking in the mirror at myself, I don't want to look in the mirror and see someone that's disheveled. That doesn't bother a lot of people, but it bothers me. Mm-hmm. So it's better for my mental health if I feel like I look put together and I'm also wearing comfortable clothing. So Freya is one of the goddesses on my pantheon who has supported me in sparking the inspiration of looking at certain kinds of clothing, shopping at certain stores, or looking for certain things on Pinterest to try and put together a wardrobe that works for that, making that a priority because that has not always been a priority for me at at all. Mm -hmm. Working with Aphrodite, she's been working with me to self-love, love yourself more, but in the way that is physical. So it's finding out, like Megan said, what clothes look good on you and are comfortable. Understand your body's lines and curves and shapes. So that way you're not being put into fast fashion, pre-made lines and shapes that don't actually look good on you just because they're fast fashion trends. Right. Finding the colors that look good on you, which was very difficult for me to find. I have auburn hair color. So in the summers, my hair is dominantly more red in color than Mm -hmm. anything else. But in the winter, even my closest cousins and friends think my hair is dyed black or dark, dark brown brunette because it's changed naturally from red to dark brown black. Similar to how blonde hair will lighten up in the summer because of exposure to light. Yeah, the exposure to the sunlight and exposure to light in general determines whether or not you perceive my hair as red or brunette. And if you're looking into like what colors look good on you, one of the theories is that color season, which is flawed in and of itself, but it's a good place to use as a jumping board into what colors look good for you, Mm -hmm. as long as you're willing to do the work necessary to get around the flaws. And one of the flaws I came across is not very many color seasons really understand the diversity of redheaded people. Most systems want to put them in autumn and just... Yeah, and and be done with it. Like, oh, that's a redhead. Autumn. Autumn looks good on you. Definitely autumn. Like, actually, most autumn colors don't look good on me because I don't have warm coloration to my skin tone. I'm a cool coloration individual. Warm colors make me look sickly. But the problem is that I look red or pink across the board in the summer. My skin is getting pinker because of exposure to light and heat. My hair is getting redder because of exposure to light and heat. So I'm kind of becoming a more muted toned individual. And then in the winter, It drastically separates where my hair darkens by a lot and my skin coloration lightens by a lot. So I look very high contrast in the winter. Yep. How do you buy clothes of one season for someone who has two seasons? You buy two seasons. And I didn't really quite grasp that (laughs) until Uh quite recently because I was... All the research I was doing is like, well, you are a season. You're not multiple seasons. Right. Because we were doing the research together. I'm a soft autumn for anyone who's interested. But you will have palettes on either side of your season. So there's three categories which within each season. And you can usually borrow colors from your adjacent seasons to inform your wardrobe and expand your color choices. For Shannon, they're not adjacent. <laughs> they're <No>. opposite. 
And this was the journey that Aphrodite helped her on because this was complicated. Yeah, Aphrodite sent me down this path, this incredibly complicated and mind-boggling journey, and then held my hand through it as she pushed me further along. <laughs> you can't stop. Right. Stopping is not an option. We are continuing down this path. Aphrodite was very sympathetic to how complicated my physical form actually is and how to show my physical form love through lines, shapes, and colors. Well, because sometimes radical acts of self-love take a lot of work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? Defining yourself through labels of these are my lines, these are my shapes, and these are my colors or my seasons is radical because you are being very self-aware and very self-centered in that moment. According to the teachings of our civilization and our society, you're not supposed to be that way. You're not supposed to think about yourself at all. Right. Because that shows you're thinking about yourself too much. Right. You're supposed to be low maintenance so that you can give more to society at large. Yeah. And if there's one thing that Aphrodite is, it is not low maintenance. No, not at all. And the thing of it is, I don't feel it's being high maintenance to curate your personal life and your personal habits in ways that are going to bring you joy, that are going to make you more comfortable and help you cement yourself in your identity. It takes work to get there. But once mm -hmm. you have some of these things worked out, you're actually more low maintenance than you were before because you're less uncomfortable more of the time. So you're not sitting around feeling like you're wasting your time because you're at an activity, doing an activity that you don't enjoy yeah. and you're going to have to recover from later or you're wearing clothing that you know doesn't suit you and it feels wrong. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I do suffer from or did suffer from was ADHD rage over whether or not the clothing felt right. <laughs> yeah. Going through this process with Aphrodite, I've drastically decreased those moods because now the lines and the colors and the shapes and textures feel right. Uh -huh. Allowing myself not to get triggered by these things that fast fashion has determined is the trend. Like, I don't get triggered by them as much anymore because I'm not wearing the trend. I'm wearing what looks good to me on me and feels good to me and on me. Right. Same. Laughs an autistic over here <laughs> on my head. <laughs> if you think about it, those kinds of things, those kinds of activities are an act of defiance mm -hmm. in terms of societal expectation. So they could be very easily categorized as part of the more warlike aspects of these love deities. Love doesn't just mean sweetness and light and being the manic pricky dream girl who's never in a bad mood. Love, especially loving the self, it's an act of rebellion and defiance. And sometimes it's really ugly mm -hmm. in terms of societal expectation. It's just ripping yourself away from societal expectation. That can be metaphorically a very bloody process. Mm -hmm. And sometimes. You need help from war gods to support that. Not only do we have love goddesses that have aspects that gear them more towards war, we have warrior gods that have aspects that are extremely loving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I work with Aries 
there was a lot of deep diving into his mythology that I did when I first encountered him as a potential deity that w wanted to work with me on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. Of course, when I first realized that Aries was looking to work with me in this way, I was very hesitant, reluctant, to say the least. I avoided it for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. But eventually, I couldn't avoid it anymore. I mean, it's really hard to avoid spiritual things if you're a spiritual person. Right. I work with deities that only really have a fair exchange policy with me, where I can give them energy and they give me something in return. I don't worship. I work with. Right. So... When Aries came up, it was like, I can work with you. I have things for you to learn, and you have energy that I like. Let's work something out. When I finally couldn't avoid it anymore, again, deep dive into mythology, Aries became very personable, and I understood him well past the ruining reputation the myths gave to him, because the myths of Aries were designed to ruin his reputation. Yep. He's not bloodthirsty in the way that he's portrayed. He's not a dumb jock the way he's portrayed. He's not this typical toxic alpha male storyline that is pushed onto people. That's something that ended up happening when the original conquerors of Greece came in and decided that Zeus was going to be the king of the gods and the king of heaven. They had to propel other gods upwards into positions that they didn't necessarily want. And Ares did not want to be above his female counterpart. He wanted to be equal to her, as he had always been. Right. So his mythology is based off of the diminishing of his power source. In Olympian mythologies, Athena's heroes go on quests that destroy or kill things that belong to Ares. Mm -hmm. Now, this doesn't mean that Athena herself is a bad character or anything like that. It's just she was an instrument in the diminishing of Ares and his power source. But Athena, as a war goddess, was also greatly diminished. Her arrival to Greece is from Libya before the Olympian conquerors. And she has mythology where she's a mother. She has mythology where she's a lover with Dionysus. She's a lover of Poseidon. She loses those aspects when the love goddesses lose their war aspects, and when warrior gods lose their love and passion aspects. When you deep dive into his mythology, the first thing that Ares learns from his foster father, because they did fostering, which is something that the medieval European culture also did, your child gets to a certain age and they can't learn anything else from you because you love them too much, they send you to an ally, an uncle, or someone who still loves you, will still care for you, will still make sure you're unharmed and not going to get maimed or die, but they're there to teach you the hard lessons of life. And Ares is sent to Piapus, who is a vegetation fertility god. And this god teaches Ares how to dance before he teaches him anything else. It's impressive that Priapus can dance. Look for images of him to see why I said that. You won't be sorry. <laughs> you, nope, nope. And you will understand completely. It is very impressive. This is why he's a god. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but Ares doesn't learn to fight. He doesn't learn how to handle weapons. He doesn't learn anything about war. Ares learns to dance. And in dancing, he learns how to interact with women. Mm -hmm. He's a 
god of passion that leads to war and he's the god of soldiers and battles and yes bloodshed but he's also there with the soldiers when they come home to help them decompress Uh he's not the strategist he's not standing above or beyond the war zone he's in the thick of it with you helping you on a psychological and psychic level to deal with the horrors of war and what you are doing during war and then helping you afterwards. Yes, he cares for every aspect of masculinity in a very comprehensive way from mental health and emotional health to spiritual and physical health. Mm -hmm. Traditional Olympian mythology, Ares is the only god who is a seromonogamist. So when he's in a relationship with a woman, he's in a relationship with a woman, period. It's that woman. When he's no longer in a relationship with her, he's in a relationship with someone else. Right. And not that this is radical for the Greek pantheon, but he may also be bisexual. Hephaestus and Ares' sacred triad with Aphrodite. There's no mythological evidence to highlight this particular type of relationship where Ares is a third in a sacred triad, whether it is with Hephaestus and Aphrodite, or Eris and Strife, or even a third pairing was Alala and a third masculine war god. But his pattern of one woman and a fellow masculine partner does pop up quite a bit in mythology yeah so his sexuality is not necessarily straightforward (laughs) right and yet he's the god of war he's the pinnacle of masculinity so what does that mean in light of all this information it's it's very interesting Mm -hmm. it means that true masculinity as we know is not in how hard you can punch yeah and how strong you can be in holding back And holding space, too. Right. And how much strength do you apply to a situation? Mm -hmm. You can have all the strength in the world, but if you can't control it, then what is it even there for? You can't accomplish anything. Mm -hmm. So war gods and warrior gods are very, again, one-dimensionally presented to us in modern society because it's convenient. The reduction of warrior gods to reduce their love aspect can also be seen in the embodiment of Lucifer. So Lucifer's story, like Ares, is pretty complicated. Lucifer may have started out as female, so Lucifer's gender is always in question. They can be one, the other, both, neither. Lucifer I work with him and he generally presents to me as male so i use he him pronouns but lucifer began as a messenger for venus or aphrodite the name means light bringer lucifer is also heavily conflated with the christian concept of satan and even named as the serpent in the garden so there's a lot of really complex stuff going on here but lucifer above all else is depicted as a warrior angel an archangel that has fallen and loves nothing more than to stir up trouble wherever Mm -hmm. he is and that's true (laughs) (laughs) but not for malicious reasons So Lucifer is very similar to Ares in that he has been stripped of all of the things that make him a whole being and reduced down to this very sinister, malicious archetype. Mm -hmm. Whereas he was a servant of Venus 
or Aphrodite. I'm using them interchangeably, even though they're really not. They're on par with each other. So he may also be conflated with Ares at some point. He may be linked to Ares in some way. But his biggest thing was bringing illumination, bringing enlightenment to situations. And sometimes you need to carry around a big sword for people to listen to you. A Teddy Roosevelt quote is coming to mind. Speak softly, but carry a large stick. Yep. And Lucifer is also well known for mainly interacting with women. So in the original creation story that you find in Genesis in the Bible, if you're ascribing Lucifer to that story, he interacts mostly with Eve. He could not care less about Adam. He doesn't want to talk to this guy. <laughs> Adam's off like chasing sheep somewhere or whatever he does. Lucifer's interested in Eve. He mm -hmm. wants her to be the one to understand what the fruits will do and trying to teach her about reason and enlightenment and the cosmos at large because he understands that she is the one who is curious and she even in the very distilled down bible story she's the one who's curious and adam is the one who is more cautious mm -hmm. eve is not the first woman that lucifer interacts with in terms of the garden of eden the first woman he interacts with there is lilith mm -hmm. and lilith is sometimes conflated with Lucifer and sometimes they're one being, sometimes they're lovers, sometimes Lucifer is merely her teacher, but either way they have a very deep close connection where Lucifer is imparting knowledge to these women. It's part of his purpose to bring this knowledge almost exclusively to women. Mm -hmm. Why that is, I'm not certain other than the origins of him being the messenger of a queen of heaven goddess. So could he be the spark or fragment of light that was supposed to ignite the knowledge in the female being that we are, we are divine? Mm -hmm. In the femininity of all beings, trigger that receptive part of all beings. Exactly. And there is a pretty solid theory that the soul, that spark of life in all of us is feminine. Mm -hmm. And if you look at mythologies across the board, that feels very true. The Shekinah is a Hebrew concept of that spark of life, the Holy Spirit, the soul, mm -hmm. that fragment of the higher Sophia that makes us human. Yep. And it's female. In uh, Greek mythology, it's Psyche. Yes. So the story of Psyche and Eros is a story of a spiritual love because it's a spirit and it is Eros, the god of love. Exactly. So to encourage anyone thinking about working with love deities, anyone who already is working with love deities or war deities, really wonderful thing to do is start to parse out all of these fragments. Start to pull those out and how and why do those affect humans at large, those aspects? How do they affect humans at large and why do they affect humans at large? And then how does that work itself into your needs, your spiritual needs. How can you use that to bolster greater spiritual love for yourself? Mm -hmm. 
That's all we have on our topic for today. Thank you so much for listening in, and we hope you'll join us again soon. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest for more witchy wisdom, both here and on our blog. And you can also check out our original art on Society6 for sacred decor and more. Thanks again for joining us. Go make some magic and live your best life. Bye. Bye.